Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. My name's Amelia, and today we have a really interesting guest on the show. We've got Shiva, who is an animal nutritionist and a PhD candidate. Welcome to the show, Shiva. Thank you, Amelia. This should be good fun, I think. Can we start with hopefully an easy question? What is your job? So um, as the title suggests, I'm an animal nutritionist um, and it's very similar to a human nutritionist and dietitian, except it's related to animals. And like humans, animals have issues with their diets that can lead to other health issues. Animals like us can get kidney issues. They can get issues um, with kidney stones and things like that. So we try to use diet to try and help them and then there are also animals that have weight issues so it's that's the kind of work that I do. Fantastic I'm really curious about what's going to come next. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what does an average day at work look like for you? Okay so I wouldn't say it's average it's so um, it's so diverse on a day-to-day so pretty much as soon as 8 30 starts which is when my working day really begins I get inundated with emails, calls, messages from pet owners or um, commercial companies that I help with. And so I'll be dealing with a lot of their questions. So sometimes there may be clients that I've formulated recipes for and they just need clarification on the amounts that they need to feed or if they're reading something correctly or sometimes with commercial companies, um, they'll need a lot of clarification as well or they've got this extra question which which usually floors me at times so there's a big learning experience in that as well but it's never quite the same but generally I spend my days answering phone calls, emails, formulating for pet owners and commercial companies. So you're working on a massive scale so all the way from presumably one pet who needs some assistance all the way up to like designing whole diets that can be produced? Yeah, so there's that. And I guess another thing I should say is aside from formulating for commercial companies, I also help them with them meeting the requirements that they're meant to, I guess, by law. In Australia, we don't have a real, we don't really have laws per se, but we follow something called NRC, which is the National Research Council, and they're based in the United States and also AFCO, and they're also based in the United States. And so we follow those guidelines. And so my role is to ensure as well that these companies that produce pet food and also when I produce pet food for them, that they're meeting these minimum requirements so animals do not become ill and that they just do meet their basic nutrient and energy requirements as guided by these guidelines. So these guidelines are in place to help avoid animals getting malnourished or possibly like overnourished in a kind of obese way? Um, Yes, and also avoiding issues of nutrient toxicities. I think a couple years ago there were issues of a certain brand, I'm not going to name which one, but they were found to have excessive levels of vitamin D and that can have a toxic effect. And then sometimes you may have issues of excessive levels of vitamin A. So certain nutrients 
you can have them to be excessive and that can be just as detrimental as it being deficient. Yeah, right. So just like humans needing the right balance of nutrients, fats, proteins, all that sort of thing to maintain health. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, there's, there's really not too much difference except with the amounts that they would need. And presumably it's also different between different animals as well. Yeah, so each species have their own nutrients that they need in certain levels. So cats and dogs differ completely. Chickens differ differently to yeah, pigs and turkeys and things like that. Yeah, I, w- I want to ask a bit about chickens later, but we'll come back to that. Are you able to talk a bit about the research that you're doing as a PhD student? Absolutely. So currently I'm doing my PhD in animal nutrition, but specifically looking at chickens. But my current focus in the chickens are broilers. And um, some people don't know what broilers are, but broilers are your chickens produced for meat. So they're different to your egg-laying chickens. And we're specifically looking at trying to reduce the amount of dietary protein in their diets and then using supplements of amino acids. And that way there's a lot of benefits in doing doing that. It's very good environmentally. It's very good for their health and welfare. And it's and I guess going back to the environment issue in in um in the poultry industry, there's a lot of soybean meal being used. And to produce soybean meal, large and vast amounts of areas in South America and America, particularly near the Amazon, they have to cut down a lot of trees just to be able to have enough land to do farming of soybean. And soybean meals is the main ingredient in chicken feed so we're trying to reduce that by using something called synthetic or free free amino acids so these are either synthetically or fermented amino acids that are produced and added to the diets and this then allows a chicken to utilize the nutrients in a much more rapid way and that's also good for the producers it brings down their costs dramatically so we're just trying Different, we're doing different trials to see how we can best achieve that because um, sometimes we'll have issues with birds, not their weights and not what they should be. So, yeah, it's a bit of trial and error, but that's essentially what my PhD is looking at. Fantastic. It sounds like a really creative solution to a problem, actually. Yes, but it's it's a, quite a controversial area, um, but in Australia... It's quite important for us, I think, because unlike the United States and South America and Asia, we use wheat and we use sorghum as the grain for chickens. And we have to export quite a lot of soybean meal because we don't produce it ourselves. So it's important for us to get this right and to help farmers bring down their costs and improve the health and welfare of their birds might be a silly question but how do the how are the birds like reacting to this are they enjoying eating the alternative well this is something where we look at their feed intake so we look at how much food that they eat and how that then translates to their weight and depending on the trial and the certain amino acids that we use we've not always had much success and that also the other factor with that is the grain that is used as well chickens have a preference for maize or corn as opposed to wheat and protein i guess dietary bound protein is more appetizing than just nutrients being 
thrown in. And another way to, I guess, to resolve that is to adding fats because that can make a diet more palatable. So sometimes it works really well depending on the grain and sometimes it doesn't. So that's why we've got to run numerous studies to work out um, what works and what doesn't. So there's still a lot of experimentation left for you to do. Absolutely, yeah. Are you actually out there feeding the chickens or are you just giving instructions to somebody? Oh, no, I'm very much, we we have to run our trials ourselves. So we look after the chickens from the day that they arrive to the day of slaughter. So we, as students, or yeah, particularly me, we are involved in every aspect of it. And hopefully you do actually enjoy hanging out with chickens. I do. They, they're really funny things. They do know you and they get used to you. And um, that's part of the reason why you have to be involved because it's much better to just have the one person looking after them because as the saying goes, don't be chicken because they do freak out with new people coming in, um, which can then affect their behaviour and their eating. So it's always best to have the same person there every time. Fantastic. I I like that idea that they sort of get used to you and they'll be expecting you at the door. (laughs) Yeah, they do. And as soon as they see you, they they come up to their feeders and they go up to their water area as well and they just wait for you to do it. You've trained them well. (laughs) Yes. How did you end up coming up with this research project idea? So I, um, in science, it's a little bit different, I think, to humanities. And especially if it's an industry funded kind of scholarship, you don't always get the luxury of choosing what your topic is. It's usually something that your supervisors have in mind and they get funding for it. And if that's something of interest to you as a student, you approach them and um, you then take on those projects. So whereas I think in humanities, sometimes that may be the case, but other times you come up with the topic and you go with that. So, yeah. So it was a topic that was pre-existing and you've kind of joined in on it. Yes, yes. Cool. Had you ever had interest in chickens before? Yes, I did. Prior to doing my PhD, I did my master's in chickens as well, except um, instead of doing chicken meat, I was doing work with the layers, which are egg-laying chickens, and there we were looking at how the efficiency of their feed, so when they would eat food, how that would then impact the quality of their eggs. And if we were looking at specifically some birds are more efficient with their feed intake, would have better quality eggs as opposed to birds that weren't as efficient. Hmm, That's fascinating. (laughs) Very cool. What are some of the skills that you need to be able to do your job? Like you've got a lot of different things going on. Yes. So aside from, I guess, having an analytical way of thinking, this kind of work, both as an animal nutritionist and doing my PhD, you need to have good problem-solving skills. There is a lot of problem-solving that needs to be done. Things can change day to day. Issues do definitely arise and sometimes you do not have someone there to guide you and so you are left on your own to work it out. The second thing is you need to have very good interpersonal skills because this job requires a lot of talking to people. The industry, at least with the chickens, it doesn't have too many people of my generation. So I was born in the 
right? I was born in 1990. And a lot of people that are in the chicken industry, well, they're a lot older than me and they're still around and they've, they've done quite a lot. And for them, they need that face-to-face. They need a lot of talking. They still use phones to call each other and have chats. So there's, there's a lot of networking to be done. And also with clients with the animal nutrition, you need to talk to people. You need to explain things to them, yeah, verbally. So it's very important not to be shy. You can't be shy. Um, you need to be quite confident in how you interact with people. The other thing that's really crucial to the role as well is being a very good listener because you need to listen to your clients and finding out what is wrong with their animals or what they hope to achieve with the products on a commercial basis because you're going off their information and you need to deliver, I guess, the final outcome in the most efficient way. So that's a really important thing, yeah. Those would be the best three kind of skills. So I've got a good bit of problem solving, really important interpersonal skills and listening is always key. I love that you mentioned the challenges that come with intergenerational, yeah, intergenerational work. I think that's a really interesting space to be in. Yes, yes. It's very, very, it's very crucial, very crucial. And um, I think you also need to, not be phased by things people say or do because a lot of them are from agricultural backgrounds and so sometimes some ways of describing things is not as politically correct you just have to kind of go with the flow I feel like I'd say they have different cultural norms (laughs) different yeah very much so and and what's interesting and I I mean this is, uh, this is very true. Um, and also with the poultry industry, I mean, with most farming industry areas, is predominantly males. And so being a female, getting involved, it, it, they're most welcoming. I do not deny that at all. And they're very willing to teach. But if you're willing as well, but uh, it, it can be a bit intimidating at times because sometimes you may be a bit afraid to say, oh, I'm not too sure of that or, yeah. So, but it's definitely come a long way, no doubt. That's awesome to hear. And I think that's a skill in itself is being able to feel confident asking for clarification when you're not sure and that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Have you got any examples of problems that you've solved maybe recently that you could share, like your process of problem solving? Yes. So a recent one that I had, and this was a commercial one, this particular company asked me to formulate a number of diets for them. And I also had created this calculator for them to work out, well, for this animal at this size and this activity level and reproductive status, they would need to eat this amount of food based on the diet I created. They would need to eat this much of food. They were all very happy with it until they did some number crunching and looked at it and compared to a competitor and said, hang on, they're doing something similar, but the values that they're using as far as calorie intake for the animals are so different to what your calculator says and I said oh okay well I'll have a look at that because I I was very I was 110% certain that my my values were correct um, because I have to triple check these things before I press send anyway I went and had a look at the competitors 
values that they were using and I did a bit of research and found that the calorie intake or the calorie values, sorry, that they were using for their diets were based on values for an animal that should be, that is actually in a hospital state. So they're not exerting any energy. So they weren't accounting for that the fact that the dog may go for a walk or that the animal is young or anything like that. It was just at very much a resting rate. So the animal will not be moving. They're just there. And so that's why the the volume of food that they were giving to people was significantly less than what the animal needed to meet their energy requirements. And so I had to explain this to them. And I also had to explain that when you're creating a product and you're wanting it to be the way that you want, it does involve quite a bit of investment. And yeah, so I had to show them that the values that they were using were incorrect and the ones that I had were correct. So yeah, that was, that was, that was the most recent one that I had. That's a good one because that's involved a little bit of sleuthing and having faith in your own, the work that you've done and knowing that you are right so that you're like, so what have they done wrong? <laughs> yes. And what, and, and also I, I was very mindful because I, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about other companies, but what I did know is that that other company as well, I mean, in, in a developed country you can create your bus- a business very easily and you may not do it properly and you can make it seem like it's very good based on very good marketing and colors and things like that but this particular company was very good at their marketing but um, they didn't actually have the right I don't know who they got to formulate it but they weren't doing a good job of properly investigating what the needs of the animal is and what the correct calculations are because there are set calculations that you use to work out what the energy requirements are of an animal. Yeah, and we don't want to suddenly end up with a whole lot of really skinny animals. Oh, yeah, and animals that get tired very quickly because they just don't have, they haven't gained enough energy from their food. Of course, just lethargic animals everywhere. That's Correct. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you believed in the work that you'd done and we had the confidence to go back with the right information yes but it did take a lot of I really did have to justify myself and I do find commercial clients to be very difficult to please and I'm sure that is not unique to um, most businesses but yeah you I really had to justify it to them how have you ended up in the roles that you've got at the moment what was your path from high school to where you are now it is probably the longest path anyone has ever taken (laughs) fantastic I love a long path especially if it's not straight (laughs) this was the most yeah it was a very very windy path when I was in high school I I didn't like I'm sure many students I did not pay much attention to a lot of the schoolwork that was given to me I had absolutely no clue what I wanted to do. It just had my parents telling me what I should do. And so I did a few subjects, you know, in science when I was in year 11, didn't like it, dropped it and stuck to humanities because I was okay at it. Um, And then I had teachers telling me at school, no, you're not good at science, you're not good at maths, just stick to doing, you know, history and your humanities, you're okay at that. So that's what I did. Um, when I finished high school, I just went and did what a lot of people do when they're not sure what to do, and that's an arts degree. 
And so I went to down to Canberra. I was 17 at the time. I didn't want to live with my parents anymore. So I went down there and um, I started my arts degree and I majored in political science and something called international communication, which is essentially a linguistics um, major. And the language that I chose was Persian because that is what my background is. And I thought, oh, this will be easy. This will be so easy. I can speak it. I couldn't quite read and write, but I could speak it. But I did learn how to read and write from doing it. And I didn't fully enjoy it. I was sick of writing essays almost every day. I found it quite um, draining. And I had always, uh, to be quite honest, I had always, always wanted to do um, something with animals, whether that was veterinary science or just working with animals. But coming from a Middle Eastern background, that is something that is very much frowned upon for a female to be involved in and my parents had said why would you bother being a vet when you when you could become a human doctor it's much better you'll get paid better and it's more prestigious so I very much listened to my parents and my dad said well you're better off just doing you know your arts degree that's much better than putting a hand up a cow's ass so I, I, I listened to my parents and, and I didn't do anything with animals but I mean after a while it started to bug me and when I was about when I finished my degree was I aged 22 I worked for a little bit as an intern doing political research for a shadow foreign minister at the time and that was Julie Bishop and I did that I actually did that from the age of 19 until I finished my degree and but I was still so keen to do stuff with animals and I gained enough confidence and realization what I wanted to do after that stint I enrolled myself to go do a degree in zoology at the University of Western Sydney so I did that I started that at age 23 and in that time I got married as well um, and I, I I really, really enjoyed it. And it was the first time that I had to really learn science from like scratch because I didn't do complete science in year 11 and 12. Like I didn't do chemistry. I didn't finish biology. Like I was completely clueless. I, even high schoolers had better clues than me about science. So um, I had to teach myself everything. Um, and I actually managed to, and I did quite well. I was quite committed to because I also had so many people tell me, no, you can't do it. You weren't good at it. It's too hard. Just, just give it up. Just stick to what you were doing before. Um, but I, I did that and I, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And it was from there. I did a unit actually in animal nutrition that really caught my eye and I was also interested in it because I had this cat which I was very lucky to get because my parents were very against having pets but I did have this cat and we had no idea what to feed it we just went off what the breeder told us and it was just like a raw diet and he started to get quite unwell like his immune system was constantly like he was always in a state of illness and he just seemed so frail and I guess because of him, quite honestly, and doing that unit, I just thought, no, I'm going to go down the path of animal nutrition because it's something, especially with companion animals, that is not thoroughly 
really looked at. People rely on vets to give them that information and vets are kind of like general practitioners where they've got, you know, a good understanding of diet and what's good for you, but they're not the dietitian. They don't know as much detail. So that's that was the path that I took. I looked everywhere. Where could I learn about animal nutrition? And I, after I finished my zoology degree, I enrolled at the University of Sydney and they had a Master's of Animal Science majoring in animal nutrition. And they were one of only two universities doing it. Charles Sturt was the other one, but I wasn't prepared to go all the way there. So I enrolled and I... I did my master's and I did any other kind of small little courses to teach myself. And I also had worked as a veterinary nurse all throughout my um, undergraduate degree and my master's. So I gained a lot of hands-on and clinical experience to help me. And after I did my master's, I had set up my business and I was looking in, oh, how can I, what, what more can I do? Like, what more can I do with animal nutrition? You know, I want to work in the sphere of animal nutrition. And unfortunately, Australia is not, they don't have a huge industry in animal nutrition. It's mainly in the United States and Europe. And I couldn't exactly go there and um, gain that kind of experience because I was married and I also, I was pregnant during my master's and I had my daughter in my my first daughter in 2017 so that just was not an option for me so I thought what's the next path and what do employers in Australia really look for and they want a PhD even for high executive sales jobs in animal nutrition businesses they have a PhD you must have a PhD so that's why I thought well I need to go to a PhD because anyone else I compete against in the future for a job will have that so that's how I ended up doing my PhD and also running my own business just to, yeah, make life (laughs) very busy for myself. That is one of the most fantastic stories. There's so much in there. (laughs) I know it was a bit convoluted. (laughs) Even just the fact that you were told at high school that you're not good at science and you should just give it up, like that's just heartbreaking to me to hear because clearly you're really, really good at science. I think, yeah, well, now I am, but at the time, I think didn't teachers make a huge difference to the lives of children and I think sometimes they realise that and that can make or break a student and um, they can definitely guide them right. So I wasn't guided in the right way and also because um, my parents, my parents were educated, both of them had postgraduate degrees but not in Australia and their way of thinking was very different about education. They just expected, okay, we have a bright child, so she should be able to grasp everything and then they just leave it to the child to work it out um, without, you know, being there and guiding them properly and really knowing what's going on. So I don't think I had the right guidance or encouragement and then I had to find that out and encourage myself as I got older and gained more experiences, yeah. And I think that's incredibly common. Do you find that in your roles now you're using skills that you picked up in your first degree and like during your internship and that sort of stuff? Definitely. I still use my notes that I use, like that I um, wrote down. I very much refer to them and I very much use those techniques and formulas. So, yes, very much so. Within that path, like it sort of sounded like it was more of a 
gradual transition of realizing that you wanted to follow your passion with animals were there any sort of key moments where something went click and you were like no this is actually the thing I have to do this is what I'm passionate about yes so when I undertook that that very first unit in animal nutrition so I got very interested in and I was looking around about companion animal nutrition and they're really I realized oh there's no one doing it in Australia like at that in in the United States they do have vet nutritionists and um you know there are people there and it's not uncommon but in Australia there was absolutely no one and everyone would go to their vets and when I used to work at this pet pet big pet store company people would always ask me about what to feed their pets and what they should do. And it was just always having those kind of interactions as well as my own experience with my own pet that made me go, right, this is the path that I will absolutely be taking kind of like trailblazing because it doesn't exist and it should exist because where are all these people going to go to when they have these questions and there should be someone that can properly and independently answer these questions for them that's a great motivation I think is your plan now like now that you're doing your PhD is your plan to continue being like self-employed and trailblazing or are you hoping to get one of the jobs that you were describing earlier probably trying to juggle both definitely trying to both um and some people do in the industry i mean when we think animal nutritionists when at least when i tell people the first thing that comes in people's minds is cats and dogs that's it but animal nutritionists uh also cover many other species like chickens pigs horses and that's their specialty and some people have their own businesses whilst also working for other big companies and my business is like i i think it's something that i would absolutely continue um just because it's people need as I said that independent person that can help guide them and because something like this doesn't exist I think it it needs to and it's something that I want to keep growing so yeah it's something that I would would have to juggle so yeah well it sounds like it's an opportunity to really make a difference as well which is always good absolutely yeah yeah it's also, it's got so much room to grow and to have it recognised because animal nutritionists in the agricultural sector, that's not an uncommon, like there's many animal nutritionists in the agricultural sector, but um, in the com- companion animal sector, that there really isn't. What they, like with these companies, pet food companies, when they have people formulate the diets, this is often someone who may have done something in agriculture and they've learned to use a software and the software formulates, but there isn't that, there isn't that kind of human aspect or that clinical aspect where they're thinking of the animal and that they truly understand how the animal may work or, or, yeah. So I think it's crucial to have or do continue the work that I'm doing. And especially now when we're spending so much extra time with our pets and probably experiencing their food a lot more than we used to. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I know I know we are this year at least. <laughs> What's something that's really, really cool about your job? What helps you get excited about getting up in the morning and answering all those emails? The fact that I will be learning something new. I know that sounds really cliche, but it's because I'll be learning something new. 
I don't have all the answers for everything and I do really get a buzz out of someone asking me a question and then I'm forced to work it out. Um, so I really, really love problem solving and I like that the day will definitely not be the same. And funnily, I enjoy calls from people who like to kind of start a fight with me about why their raw food diet is great for their pet. So, yeah, <laughs> it's just those, it's just the challenges that get thrown at me. That's cool. That's cool. I like that you're not going to shy away from those phone calls. Oh, no, I, I take them with great delight. I can, it, I can definitely see it being something that people would be very opinionated about. They are. And the thing is, when I do speak to them, I, I'm not I'm not by any means rude or patronising. The whole point of what I do is to re-educate people because people have these views on pet food and pet food industry that are so outdated. It's just like these myths that just keep getting recycled and you're having um, certain individuals who have their own agendas for selling their products recycling these myths so my role is to just give people the facts just I'm very much a black and white person with that kind of stuff it's just the facts take it or leave it make your own informed decision I have no agenda I don't sell a product I just want to give you the science of the food and how your animal works so yeah that's a great driver very awesome what is some advice you'd give to a young person or really anyone who might be interested, particularly in becoming an animal nutritionist? Sounds like there's a lot of space. Yes. So um, unfortunately now the University of Sydney and Chester University have packed up their degrees in animal nutrition because they just didn't get enough enrolment. So in Australia, it's not something that you can go really and study. That said, if you're really, really keen and you've got the time, go overseas and do it. Go to the United States and do it. They have they have courses there and it's taught really well. It's very industry focused, very practical. Or you can go to Europe in the UK. I mean, I can't, it's probably not the best time now because of COVID and my God in the United States is in a really, really bad state. But hopefully when things do improve you know, their options because unfortunately Australia has kind of shut its doors to teaching that and I was the last cohort of students to be able to undertake it. I mean, you would need to do a degree, something to do with, I would definitely go do a degree in science where you're learning biochemistry because a lot of it is biochemistry, biology. So you need to have those fundamentals of science covered and you do need to go do postgraduate studies if you want to progress in the field. Masters is great, but going to that level of PhD to at least have a very good and fulfilling career in the field. So it's definitely not easy, but it sounds like there's a lot of potential that it would be really rewarding. Absolutely. And once once you enter that field, the opportunities are enormous. They really are. And the people that are already in the industry are so happy to take on people and to teach them. And there's so much research and development. So even if you don't want to work as a nutritionist per se, 
you can always work in the research area where you're doing trials in nutrition. So you don't always have to be formulating. We have nutritionists that don't formulate for companies or people, but they are doing the research to say, this diet works, this product does work in this diet. So there's just a lot, a lot that you can do with an animal nutrition degree. And I love that it sounds like there's still so much that's unknown, so much that you can uncover and make things better at the same time. So, so much. Like it's mind-boggling how much is unknown in the world of animal nutrition. So if there's, if there's never a shortage of learnings. That always blows my mind. I just think we've been hanging out with dogs and cats for quite a while. You'd think we would have worked it out by now. Oh, gosh, no, we don't know very much at all. It's amazing. There's potential people. You should investigate it. Is there anything that you wish the general public understood about your job or any myths that you'd like to take this opportunity to bust? Yes. Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so I, I think the first thing I'll say is that when we talk about animal nutritionists, people think and people think wow that is so cool and maybe in their minds they've got this really romantic view of like you're going and cuddling cats and dogs and doing all this stuff and it, like it's a really cool kind of job maybe like a charlie and the chocolate factory situation but actually there are when we say animal nutritionists there's there are it's really broad so there are other species as well you've got um cows so both beef and dairy, you've got goats, you've got sheep, you've got yeah, ruminant nutritionists, you've got monogastric, got with the monogastric they cover pigs and horses. So it covers all species of animals and some people just do horses or some just do cows and some just and very much just do chickens and just the meat chickens. There's different types of animal nutritionists so people need to keep that in mind. It's not just cats and dogs. And the other thing is with, um, I guess, a, something that I would like to debunk is regarding commercial foods, and I will say this as well, I don't work for any commercial food company. I have never worked for a commercial food company. But what I do know is that there's a lot of science and research that goes into formulating these foods that are balanced and complete, and there is absolutely variation in the foods. So one will be much better than the other because of the quality of ingredients that they use. And grain-free is, it's a complete fad of a diet which should not be imposed on animals. Grains are really, really amazing for our animals. They contain vitamin E, they contain other vitamins and minerals that they desperately need. And they also are the prime source of energy for your animals. People that like to just say raw foods and, well, you don't want your animal using protein as their source of energy. That's not what protein's for. Protein is for muscle maintenance and deposition. So people really need to understand what nutrients, what they do for their animal. They need to really evaluate how they think about their pet food and not just take on the marketing that's given to them. The biggest one, as I've said, is raw food. They talk a lot about the ancestral diet. Well, the ancestor of a dog, okay, we say wolf, but the wolf very much differs to the modern dog, very much so. And But the ancestral dog, they didn't have access to cows. Like they didn't go hunt cows and get their meaty bones and 
um, <laughs> and eat that. They were left with having whatever they could find, scavenge, rodents, cockroaches, having some berries from bushes and things like that, whatever they could get. They had very short lifespans and they were quite unwell. Um, they didn't have this access to salmon and, yeah, cows per se in the way. It's just a very romanticised view of how the animal ate. We have improved their lives with the types of commercial diets that are available to them. So I think people just really need to think about the marketing that's being put in front of them and really think before they fall for that. So, yeah, and I don't know how the ancestral dog was getting access to raw eggs before before the domestication of chickens. That's a, something I do often think about. So, and this is what I want people to think about as well. Yeah. Another big myth is about chicken hormones and antibiotics. So chickens have not had hormones added to them for over 50 years. So I think people need to be mindful of that. That's another marketing thing. And um, we don't use antibiotics either. We use other alternatives to help minimise issues of disease in birds. So just thinking a little bit critically and maybe logically about your pet's diet, and honestly, it sounds like those fads that you've mentioned, the grain-free and the raw, kind of reflect human fad diets as well. Absolutely, 100%. That said, there are some people that are very adamant to have those diets for their animals, and that's fine if you want to do it, um, and I do accommodate it, but you've got to do it properly. You have to be open-minded to go, right, well, these are the supplementations we need to add because they're not going to get all their nutrients from just a hunk of a few meats and a bone. There's a lot of supplementation that they need to take just to meet their minimum nutrient requirements in a day. Makes a lot of sense. People need to think for themselves and, you know, you need to think for your pet as well. Absolutely. And I forgot completely forgot to ask you, how can mature age people, people who maybe already have a job or have already had a career, how could they be involved in animal nutrition? Yes, and they and they definitely can. And what you can do is some people, like if you don't want to work as a nutritionist per se, but you still want to do the research and have people know about your findings, it's I recommend joining the university library so you have access to peer-reviewed articles and whatever takes your interest, whether it's looking at energy utilisation of dogs or cats or anything like that, or looking at reduced crude protein diets or anything like that with an animal, go read those articles and then you can create, you can do your own literature review and send it to a journal if you wanted. And, you know, if, it, if it's good, if it's good sound science, then, you know, you could be published or you could do things like a meta-analysis paper so there's things that you can do by just writing papers so then other people like myself, when I go read scientific articles, I can also utilise that information. Yeah. That is one of the best piece of, pieces of advice that I've heard. That That's so clever. Makes so much sense. <laughs> <laughs> do you think we can find a link for people if they're interested in joining a library? So I would recommend, as I said, university ones. So depending on the state that you're in, some universities have, you may pay a certain amount, annual amount per year. 
and they'll give you, you can borrow the books from there and you'll have access to most journals. So yeah, find out from the, your, the university that's closest to you or, um, and find out what their rules are regarding non-student borrowers or library users. Yeah, I think most of the unis I've been at have had some sort of community option for signing up. And I'm just going to say that 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 suggestion of creating like a meta-analysis of reading all the articles and that sort of stuff, that does not just have to be for animal nutrition. If you've been inspired by any of the other ideas on this podcast or there's just something tickling away at the back of your brain, like there is nothing to stop you. So just to wrap up, uh, we've covered some really awesome stuff, but I would love to know who would you like to give a virtual high five to? I want to give a virtual high five to my friend Jessica Agios from the University of Sydney who is wrapping up her PhD and she's doing like the coolest area of science. She's actually looked at um, novel diseases in critically endangered reptiles in Christmas Island. So her contribution to the field is enormous. So I just want to give her a big high five and good luck with wrapping up your PhD. It sort of sounds like Jessica is someone we should see if we can get on the show. Yes, and I think she'd be more than happy to. Probably after her PhD is done. So, um, yes, big high five to, for Jessica and to all the PhD students who are attempting to wrap up at the moment. It's challenging times, but you can do it. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Shiva. It has been an absolute pleasure and I've learned so much. Thank you so much, Amelia. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions. He gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats. And he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic.